Well, a couple weeks ago, Stephanie and I had the privilege of uh, enjoying a delicious dinner with uh, Mary and Colin Peters. I don't know if they're here today or not. I don't, if you're here, raise your hand. They may not be here. Um, Colin is the new RUF area director responsible for 18 different campuses in our general area, and he's doing a fantastic job. And formerly, he was a pastor at New St. Peter's. And then when he transitioned out of that role and into the new one, he and his wife, Mary, came here. So we had a fabulous dinner. And in the course of the meal, it came out that Mary is also from North Carolina. His wife is from North Carolina. And she's from the beautiful and quaint Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Winston-Salem, but it's really a, a gorgeous city in North Carolina. And um, when Winston-Salem comes up these days... There's a couple from our church who were with us for a number of years, but then a number of years ago transitioned for work to Winston-Salem, Amy and Marshall White. I don't know if any of you remember them and their precious children, but uh, they transitioned to Winston-Salem, and any time Winston-Salem comes up, the Whites come up, in particular Amy White and her connection to one of my favorite authors of all time, I've told you about him before, Pat Conroy. I've mentioned him many, many times. A Southern writer, he is just outstanding, and I just love him for so many reasons. Amy White is connected to Pat Conroy in a fascinating way. Well, I was reading back in 2007 his latest book, Pat Conroy, called My Losing Season. And it's basically a memoir of his life where he talked about his senior year of basketball at the Citadel. You may have seen the movie Lords of Discipline or read the book Lords of Discipline. That's Pat Conroy. He went to the Citadel. And at any rate, his life had been building up to starting as point guard for the Citadel Bulldogs. Basketball was his life. It was his very existence. And so he was promised the starting role. He begins to start for the Citadel Bulldogs until an upstart, incredibly athletic freshman supplants him in the starting role for the Citadel Bulldogs. That was Amy's father, T. And so as I am, I think we were having dinner, maybe doing some premarital counseling or something. It came out that I was reading this book that I love, Pat Conroy. She said this. She said, Pat invited our whole family out to dinner to make sure all the details relating to her father were correct. I was just blown away. Her father was also an All-American tennis player at the Citadel, so I can understand why he was, you know, so good at basketball as well. <laughs> I love Pat Conroy, and, and in this book, My Losing Season, that has Amy's father in it, he talks about um, the difficulty of being raised by this Marine fighter pilot, Don Conroy, like one of Pat Conroy's books is called The Great Santini. That's what he called his father. Very, very, very abusive man. And um, 
Pat Conroy really struggled with identity and self-worth. And here's what he writes, and he's really writing about himself in ways in this book, My Losing Season. And this, again, this is a memoir. Conroy writes, he writes, Loss invites reflection and reformulating and a change of strategies. Loss hurts and bleeds and aches. And he's talking about not only just life in general, but the loss of this thing that he coveted so much. Loss is always ready to call out your name in the night. Loss follows you home and taunts you at the breakfast table. It follows you to work in the morning. You have to make accommodations and broker deals to soften the rabbit punches that loss brings to your daily life. You have to take the word loser and add it to your resume and walk around with it on your name tag as it hand feeds you on your shame in dosages too large for even great beasts to swallow. The word loser follows you, bird dogs you, sniffs you out of whatever fields you hide in because you have to face things clearly and you cannot turn away from what is true. And sadly, that's what he's saying about himself. How he viewed himself because of many of the things that his father did and said. Conroy, he writes with a visceral honesty, making us feel every shade of the human experience. Well, in a similar vein, Judges 3, 12 through 30, it doesn't hold back either. The writer of the book of Judges, especially this particular judge, the story is honest, it is vivid, and it is raw. Both authors, in their unique ways, highlight the power of storytelling, one modern and one ancient, but both incredibly impactful. Both are literary geniuses, and I think you'll come to appreciate that about the book of Judges after we finish today. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Before I read, briefly remember, repetition is the key to learning. Remember we've said that? I'm repeating that. Remember what a judge is? If you went out to lunch today, could you define for a friend or your spouse or for your family what is a judge in the sense of the book of Judges? It's not a person with a black robe and a gavel per se. It's like a tribal chieftain. It's like a military general. It's a rescuer and a deliverer. The book of Judges is right between two major things in Israel's history. One bookend, 1850 BC, that's when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of southern Iraq, 1850 BC, David is crowned king in 1000 BC. Right between those, around 1350 BC, that's the time when the judges ruled. Okay, friends, let's look at Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And the people of Israel, again, as Chris mentioned, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites 
and the Amalekites, also enemies of Israel, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years they were enduring oppression and slavery. Verse 15, then. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, a judge, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, meaning it was sharp on both sides, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon, little editorial note, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Now remember I told you, so whereas like Conroy is a very vivid writer, and he like gives evocative images of the things he's describing, he's a master storyteller, the writer of Judges is as well. Very vivid, very descriptive. I think we can all agree. Verse 23, then Ehud went out into the porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them, okay, so that he could get away. Verse 24, when he had gone, Eglon's servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So they thought he was going to the restroom and there was probably a smell that was coming out as well. You probably didn't know you were gonna get this this morning. Very vivid description. They said at the end of verse 24, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. They're like going like, oh my goodness, what is going on? What did he eat last night? What is happening here? But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud the Jewish judge, he escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah 
When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader, he was their judge, and he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his rich blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, if you recall from last week, if you were here, we briefly talked about um, the cycle of the judges. We looked at Judges chapter 2, and we viewed Judges chapter 2 through the lens of like an abstract, like if you're studying a, a scientific paper of some kind, a scientific study, they often contain abstracts at the beginning, these comprehensive summaries or paragraphs that tell you, you know, everything about the paper in kind of summary form, and that's what the book of Judges chapter 2 did. And so what happens in the book of Judges is you get the same cycle over and over and over. The people of God sin. God disciplines them by raising up a foreign nation to oppress them and enslave them. They come to their senses, as it were, repent and cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge to deliver them. The land and the people have rest for a number of years. The judge dies Guess what happens to Israel after that? They relapse. And the cycle continues, and it goes on, and it escalates. And it intensifies with every judge. Like, we don't have time to do every single judge, but the one before this, Othniel, the land was under oppression and slavery for eight years. This time with Moab, it's 18 years. Things get worse. Worse, they get more difficult. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites. They went out, defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which means that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So everything is intensifying. Question for you. What is the significance, if there is significance, to the fact that Jericho has fallen? Like I said, this is a literary masterpiece. The details that the author chooses are carefully intended to convey meaning. What's the significance of Jericho falling? What was the first city taken by the Israelites as they came into the land? The city of Jericho was a gift of God. 
to reinforce his promises and his covenant and his faithfulness. And now the city of Jericho, the city of Palms has fallen and it marks the intensity of the decline and that would have presented the opportunity for the Moabites to engage in some old-fashioned ancient Near Eastern propaganda. They would have announced to the world of the ancient Near East that they were running out the Israelites. They had Jericho back in their possession. Things were not going well. Right at the beginning, we find out this was not just a military setback. It was a spiritual, political, religious setback. Look at verses 15 through 23. You'll see word plays literary devices. It's just fascinating. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute. Just a little note, the word tribute is a carefully chosen word and has great meaning here. And so this tribute he presents in verse 17 to Eglon, king of Moab, and then he gives this note, Eglon was a very fat man, that's significant. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded silence. All his attendants leave. Ehud came into him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Question, why in the world would Eglon tell all of his servants to leave and be alone with this Jewish emissary from the Israeli people. Why would he do that? Why would he feel comfortable with Ehud and no one else? Is there anything that we've learned about Ehud that might indicate that on the surface he did not appear as a threat? I guarantee you that Eglon would not have allowed Ehud in his chambers if he did not perceive that Ehud did not pose a threat. Verse 20, Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. Eglon arose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh. Why does he keep reinforcing this left hand, right thigh? And he thrust it into Eglon's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof, and got away. Now recently, I was reading a fascinating story that I had never heard in all my years. Um, it was a story about a boy named Fran 
who was born in Pennsylvania around 1912, and Fran was a wonderful boy, but he always had trouble in school. Very, very challenged in school. And while his friends and buddies in the neighborhood um, not only played sports, but they enjoyed reading and telling stories, Fran couldn't read very well, and he didn't really know how to tell stories. And when he would look at the chalkboard, you know, and, and the, the teacher would write out sentences on the chalkboard, it looked like cryptic, you know, um, expressions of characters that he didn't understand. He almost failed out of school and had a hard time finding a job. And then you find out that this person is none other than one of the most famous and used by God Christian philosophers of the 20th century. Fran is Francis Schaeffer. Let me read you a quote from his biography. A large obstacle in Fran's development, that's what they called him as a boy, which went unnoticed was severe dyslexia. In later years, many of his students at Labrie noticed what seemed to them amusing mispronunciations. He spoke of the film Dr. Strange Glove instead of Dr. Strange Love and Chairman Mayo instead of Chairman Mao. His youngest daughter, Deborah, remembers him frequently calling her down for the spelling of simple words like who and which. Even when she was as young as five and six, and yet, in the providence of God, because he had this learning difference, um, which required so much more work and so much more diligence, and he had to memorize so much more, the long and short of it is God took the weakness of precious little Fran to mold him into one of the most significant Christian philosophers of the 20th century. A severe dyslexic named Fran is Francis Schaeffer. That's one of the meanings of this text. So when it says that Ehud was a left-handed man, that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. What the Hebrew says is that Ehud was hindered or lame in his right hand. That is what many Hebrew scholars think the most literal reading of that is. That Ehud was a man who was hindered or lame in his right hand. That is why Eglon had no problem with inviting him into his inner chamber without the guards. There was probably something about the way he dressed. Like, so if you're a right-handed man and you were going to hide a dagger, where would you hide it? On your left thigh, okay? And so perhaps when they frisked him or whatever, maybe they went to his left thigh. As a left-handed man, he had it hidden on his right thigh. There was nothing about him that would have indicated that he was a warrior, that he was capable of this kind of thing. Incredible how God used the impairment of this man to accomplish his purposes. Like, 
all these little flourishes. So he has, what kind of dagger does it say he has? A two-edged, a double-edged dagger. And then when Ehud says to Eglon, I've got a message from God for you. Okay, well, it was a message, but it had a double meaning. He did have a message, but it was not a message that Eglon wanted to receive. Okay, now the word for tribute here, the Hebrew word for tribute that Ehud brought, the Hebrew word for tribute is the same word for a grain offering that would have been offered by the Old Testament Israelites that would normally obviously be offered to whom? To the Lord. And now Eglon is requiring that tribute to be brought to him to symbolize the dominance and oppression of Moab. Also, this tribute would have symbolized that I'm sure Moab was requiring tons of grain from Israel. How was Eglon described? What kind of man? What was his physique like? He was a very fat man, okay, and he was getting these tributes of grain, and so he was fattening himself at the expense of the Israelites. They were starving. They were facing great difficulty. In the ancient Near East, describing someone as very fat in this context, it does connote a physical description, but it also can symbolize opulence and greed and prosperity at another person's expense. So, so Eglon is the physical embodiment of the domination and oppression of the Israelites. Okay, so why do you think all these details, these vivid, these evocative details about his fatness, and when Ehud stabs him, that the fat closes over it, and that his, you know, excrement or dung comes out. What do you think the purpose of that is? Do you think that he's just being gratuitous? No, he's not trying to be funny. This is what happens to the oppressors of God's people. The shame and the disgrace and the humiliation involved of that fat closing over the blade, him leaving it in, the excrement coming out, his attendants having to wait, getting embarrassed about what's going on in there, is all tending to reinforce the idea that God was bringing shame via Ehud on the enemy of Israel. And that God, in fact, was rolling back the shame of Israel. Fascinating text. So much going on here. Look at verse 29. We could spend so much more time on this, but we don't have time today. So in verse 29, after Ehud kills Eglon, he rallies the troops, and they killed about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Now, this is a problem in these translations. So the Moabites are described as strong. 
Do you know that is the exact same Hebrew term that is used to describe Eglon as being what? Fat. It wasn't just Eglon whose physique was fat and able bodies, as it were. It was all of the Moabites who had grown fat and prosperous and luxurious on the backs of the Israelites. All that is being rolled back. Also incredible to think about this. So this is a pretty um, vivid, ugly period of Israel's history. Can we agree on that? Horrible oppression. God is um, very um, directly and graphically judging the enemies of Israel. What I love about the Bible is, is there are these 66 different books, but they all form a cohesive whole. Do you remember when the book of Ruth was, was happening, like, like the little tagline in the book of Ruth, when the events of Ruth were going on? In the days when the judges ruled. So when all of this horror and difficulty was going on as the Lord was judging the oppression of the Moabites, the Holy Spirit of the living God is quietly working behind the scenes to save the most unlikely of people, a Moabite woman. A Moabite woman who would be in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got Ruth quietly in the background being saved. You have the Lord raising up someone with a disability to bring down the dreaded Moabites? Do you think that anticipates something? Do you think this unlikely savior in the book of Judges foreshadows somebody else? This was happening almost 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at what happens in all these judges. The people sin, they're enslaved, they cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge to save them, but it's temporary. What is it a reminder? What is it reinforcing that we need a better judge, a true judge? And it's the most unlikely of all. A Jewish Messiah who was crucified, who was hung on a tree. You'll just have to take my word for it. That is the most unlikely unlikely savior you could possibly imagine that was the most unlikely unanticipated way of redeeming God's people through a Jew who was crucified and that's how God did it and God uses the foolish things of the world the things that the world derides God uses those things to save his people you know it's through, I was talking to someone yesterday. I was playing tennis with someone yesterday who was having a very, 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 very difficult time in life and who was um, very discouraged. 
And that quote from Spurgeon that I've mentioned so many times before just came to mind. The Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. God uses our difficulties, our pains, our trials, our weaknesses to show us our need for him and to do great things so that at the end of the day, like where would the glory go here? Would it go to Ehud? No. It's to highlight the power and grace of God. And we see that exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you, who cares for you, who's with you in the midst of your difficulty and your pain and your struggle and everyone in here has a variety of those things going on in your life right now. Every one of you has a story. Every one of you has a fear, has anxiety. You know, God meets you there. He's using that in your life to show you your need so that he can weigh in through the spirit of Jesus Christ. Here is a book that was written in 1350 BC that anticipates the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is amazing. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you of this amazing story of, of, of Ehud, and not only the life of Ehud, but how it points us to the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for teaching us today how your redemptive plan so often unfolds in ways that seem to us to be unconventional or paradoxical um, to our understanding but they always lead to a perfect conclusion. Father, we know that behind a frowning providence, you hide a smiling face, that you do all things for the good of those who love you, for those who have been called according to your purpose. If you can use someone like Ehud to deliver Israel in the context of the Old Testament, if you can use a crucified Jew to save your people. You can do anything. And Lord, we pray that you would enter into our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit to encourage us and direct us back to the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.